and welcome to another edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Associate Director of Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. On this edition of the podcast, we're dropping in on a presentation from the Federalist Society here at Albany Law run by our students. And it's what the hell are the Supreme Court's role in fleshing out the Second Amendment. And this one's going to feature Ilya Shapiro and Professor Stephen Clark from right here at Albany Law School. We'll hand it over to the Federal Society here in just a second. As always, though, reminders at the top of our show. Make sure to check out albanylaw.edu slash COVID-19 just to make sure you're up to date on all the policies that we have here at the law school. Follow us on social media for the day-to-day, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And of course, if you like this episode, you want to hear more, subscribe on any of the major podcast services or check out our SoundCloud account. All right, let's hand it over to the Federal Society. All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's event. What the Heller? Oh, okay. What the Heller? The Supreme Court's role in fleshing out the Second Amendment. Uh, my name is Michele DeFranco. I'm the president of the Albany Law School chapter of the Federalist Society. Oh, it's not on? Well, that's embarrassing. Beautiful. Um, and again, I'd like to thank you all for coming, um, sort of during everyone's favorite subject of the day, lunch. So I, I do appreciate all of you taking the time. Um, there will be a reception afterwards, so as sort of an act of contrition, uh, we will be feeding you afterwards. Uh, that'll be in the courtyard um, downstairs. Uh, today's event promises to be informative for two reasons. Uh, first, in about three weeks, the Supreme Court will hear oral argument in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, um, where it will decide the constitutionality of a New York law that requires anyone wishing to carry a gun in the state to show a good reason for doing so. Uh, this is sort of the first uh, Supreme Court case, uh, really since McDonald, uh, to address the Second Amendment. Uh, and it has a local connection too. Um, the case originated just across the Hudson in Rensselaer County. But second is that we are joined by two very special guests. Uh, I'd like to start by introducing our first speaker, uh, Ilya Shapiro. Uh, Mr. Shapiro is a vice president of the Cato Institute, director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before joining Cato, he was a special assistant and advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues and practiced at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. Uh, Mr. Shapiro is the author of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court, co-author of Religious Liberties for Corporations, Hobby Lobby, the Affordable Care Act and the Constitution, and is the editor of 11 volumes of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications. Um, with that, I would like to welcome to the podium, uh, Mr. Ilya Shapiro. Thanks very much. I'm told that speakers, professors have the option of not wearing a mask, so since all of these COVID restrictions are arbitrary, I'm going to take that option. Um, good to be here. I've been here before. Um, 
you know, this, this topic, it's, it's hot, and it's actually the first time that the court's taken up a Second Amendment, not since McDonald, because that was a 14th Amendment case, whether and how uh, the right applies to the states, but, um, but Heller itself in 2008, uh, when the court decreed 13 years ago now that the Second Amendment protects uh, an individual right. And I think the court's been derelict uh, in the intervening time in not expounding upon the scope of the right or even how lower courts are to interpret it, because it's not just that there are conflicts in the lower courts about what the right means, but there are conflicts about when you have a Second Amendment case, what rubric do you apply? What level of scrutiny? Um, what tool, what interpretive tools do you use, right? Um, and, and so in effect, the Second Amendment means different things in different parts uh, of the country. For a long time, the Supreme Court uh, presumably didn't take Second Amendment cases because neither the left nor the right of the court could be sure of what Justice Kennedy would be doing. Uh, then we had a turbulent period of you know, personnel changes and, and what have you. And John Roberts, when he was in the middle, did not want uh, uh, to politicize the court further, uh, let you be the judge of whether his project of extricating the court from the political discourse, how successful that's been. But nevertheless, finally, um, we have a case uh, that uh, I don't think will be mooted out like the previous case brought by the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association was about a even weirder New York City uh, rule. Uh, now we have this case about the right uh, to carry. Before I go into the specifics of that case, let me just say that uh, being an uh, advocate for individual rights and civil liberties can be difficult. When terrorists attack, when the economy fails, and yes, when evil visits schools and concerts and churches, the natural instinct is to demand security above all else. So after each tragedy, my social media fills with the uh, idea that we have to do something. There should be laws uh, restricting guns so they don't get in the hands of murderers. The logical impulse for those of us who defend private gun ownership is to duck such discussions altogether, uh, to let the passion settle. But on the contrary, I think it's more important than ever to present our position with a clear-eyed resolve. Even against the backdrop of each latest tragedy, I still support the fundamental right to armed self-defense, especially in an imperfect world where madness abounds. I oppose policies that would restrict legal gun ownership by law-abiding citizens. I say this despite having grown up in Canada and never owned a gun. Uh, I've shot handguns and rifles about a dozen times at uh, friends' invitation, uh, but never gone hunting. That's got to get cold, you got to get up early, maybe splashed like deer urine over here. It's not appealing to me. Um, for about a decade before I moved to the Virginia suburbs, I lived in Washington, D.C., where despite the court's ruling in Heller, it's still very hard to obtain a firearm. So I hope you can accept that I'm not a uh, gun nut. But you don't have to be crazy about guns to recognize that no law could make the 300 million firearms in America disappear. Even making it illegal to own a gun wouldn't prevent a criminal or a madman from doing his malevolent deed. Robust policies to prevent legal gun ownership only translate to guns being overwhelmingly possessed by those willing to break the law, that is criminals. For example, Connecticut has some of the strictest gun laws in the country and Sandy Hook Elementary is a gun-free zone, as is almost every place that has become a target of mass murder in recent years. It turns out putting a sign on a wall with an X through a picture of a gun does not prevent guns from entering that place. None of these measures that are at the top of gun control advocates' agenda, such as banning so-called assault weapons, 
which are ordinary rifles with certain cosmetic features that make them look scary. Um, or closing so-called gun show loopholes. It turns out that firearms dealers selling their wares at uh, gun shows still have to be licensed by, uh, by the federal government. You know, none of this would have averted these sorts of shootings. The Newtown killer stole the pistols he used. The Las Vegas murderer passed all of his background checks with flying colors. We'd be much better off focusing on improvements we can make in identifying and treating mental illness, which is the common factor in most of these situations, and ensuring that disqualifying records make it into the database used for background checks in the first place, which would have stopped the shooters at Virginia Tech, uh, the Charleston uh, Church, San Antonio Church, and, and others, just to refer to uh, various um, tragic events in recent years. Although there are some dis issues with dispossession statutes too, not every felony is violent, for example, and some misdemeanors are. So, you know, a common law where all felonies were violent and an indication of someone who was truly dangerous, that it made sense to dispossess them. But now when, you know, Martha Stewart uh, has a felony on her, on her record uh, and, and, and others, or, you know, if you forged a check 30 years ago, that somehow disqualifies you from exercising Second Amendment rights. That's something, something wrong there. Again, this isn't to say that we shouldn't have any gun regulations. Cracking down on straw purchasers, that is those who buy uh, guns to give to someone who isn't lawfully allowed to possess them, or military-grade weapons like rocket launchers and hand grenades indeed have no place in civilian life. On the other hand, it's reasonable for someone to have a gun to protect herself or her family, and that's why the Second Amendment is so important. Americans cherish their life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, so much that they instituted a government that protects their right to defend against anyone who would threaten them. After the Columbine shootings in 1999 sort of ushered in our modern debates on uh, gun rights, Colorado passed a series of laws that should serve as a national model. Some of them consist of what people call gun control. Others are in the gun rights category. The most important was the Concealed Carried Act, which has already saved uh, countless lives including at an Aurora, Colorado church three months before a shooting at, a, at an Aurora theater uh, where an off-duty cop killed a career criminal who was targeting congregants. Now these cohesive measures are based on an obvious principle that enjoys broad public support. Guns in the wrong hands are dangerous while guns in the right hands protect public safety. So as far as the law is concerned, what do we have? Well, we're still at Heller. Right, the right to possess arms for traditional lawful purposes such as self-defense. Now, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment isn't unlimited. It's not a right to keep and carry any weapon in any manner, in any circumstances. Um, the court said that, uh, quote, although we do not undertake an exhaustive historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of firearms. And the sorts of weapons that are permitted are those in common civilian use uh, at the time. Now, that paragraph that I just read has been um, expanded upon by lower courts who are hostile uh, to uh, the right to keep and bear arms. And so, um, you know, any prohibition, basically, it's what's, what's come out is as, as long as the government issues the magic words, public safety, then, then that will uh, be uh, okay. 
And it raises the fundamental problem, the fundamental question of who bears the burden of justification. Is it the citizen who wants to exercise a right or is it the government who wants to restrict the right? Um, you know, in practice, as I said, the, the government merely utters the phrase gun violence or public safety, and uh, 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 then the burden passes on to the citizen. Uh, and some uh, courts have said that the right to carry, for that matter, isn't part of the core Second Amendment right. In fact, everything beyond what Heller decided, which was to uh, uh, outlaw complete bans on functional firearms in the home, you know, that's the only core of the Second Amendment, according to these courts. Everything else is not a core Second Amendment right, and so can be burdened with uh, for, for any uh, real reason. And thus, it seems that Justice Breyer's dissent in Heller uh, where he talked about a public safety balancing test, really is the controlling holding of that. You know, not Justice Scalia's majority, not Justice Stevens's uh, dissent, which for historical reasons said that uh, it's not necessarily uh, an individual right, but instead Breyer talked about a public safety uh, balancing test. And so we have disagreement, willful confusion, or even uh, civil disobedience of lower courts from what Heller stood for. The Second Circuit, where we are here has applied nominal intermediate scrutiny, but always the burden is on the challenger uh, of uh, any uh, given state restriction or municipal restriction to prove that they have a, uh, a good need for exercising that right. And indeed this case, uh, the, the, the Bruin case that's now before the court uh, involves just that sort of law where uh, it's been on the books for a long, long time uh, in New York that uh, you have to show cause, show good cause for why you need a firearm. But in modern times, the last few decades, that really has meant for practical purposes that only celebrities and retired law enforcement uh, have been able uh, to possess firearm. Or if you have like 17 well-documented and specific and credible death threats against you, uh, it's really in effect uh, a ban for uh, almost everyone to uh, to carry. Um, uh, you know, the court will, you know, the Supreme Court is, is unlikely to allow that to, to continue. Um, that, you know, whether at common law or in early American history, the right to carry regulated to be sure uh, has not depended on uh, you know, the whim of a, of a local police chief. Now, it doesn't mean that the same laws have to apply in downtown Manhattan as apply, you know, rural upstate New York, let alone in you know, Montana or, or, or other places, uh, but certainly there has to be a consideration of the, the text, scope, and history of, of the right to bear arms, um, how, uh, uh, you know, whether, whether the reasons for restrictions that governments allow uh, have any um, uh, scientific basis, uh, historical basis, uh, how they're applied, whether that's changed, these sorts of things. The, the Seventh Circuit uh, back in 2013 struck down an Illinois ban on carrying uh, whatsoever. The DC Circuit uh, in 2017 said that the individual right to carry common firearm beyond the home for self-defense, uh, even in densely populated areas, even for those lacking special self-defense needs, falls within the core of the Second Amendment's protections. And I, and I think that's right. Um, you know, there can be uh, time, place, and manner restrictions as there are for the First Amendment. You know, I can't uh, go on your residential street and in the middle of the night and with a bullhorn tell you exactly what I think about Donald Trump or Joe Biden, even though that's core political speech. You know, similarly, you can have all sorts of restrictions and qualifications and uh, licensing rules and training qualifications and, and what have you, but you can't make it 
impossible uh, to exercise that kind of uh, right. Uh, but as I said, uh, different courts, different circuits have applied different tests. Um, uh, some have basically said, well, there's no constitutional right to open carry, leaving open the question of whether there's a right to concealed carry, and then saying, well, there's no real right to concealed carry either. It's kind of a, a catch-22. I'm agnostic uh, on the matter of open versus concealed. I mean, I suppose as a personal policy view, I think concealed is better because then it doesn't look like the Wild West where everyone's kind of walking around with holsters, plus the bad guys don't know who's carrying uh, if, it's, if it's concealed rather than open uh, either way. But I think the basic constitutional point is that keep and bear means keep and bear. You have to be able to bear. Uh, uh, like the young uh, Antonin Scalia when he was a, uh, a grade school student or high school student in, in Queens on the subway with his, uh, with his rifle to his Corps of Cadets uh, training practice. Imagine uh, that kind of scenario on the New York subway these days, right? It would be a you know, mass declaration of uh, emergency and arrests and, and all the rest of it, even if there's no indication that, that violence is in uh, the offing. Um, so that's where we are now. Um, the, the, the Supreme Court has almost certainly given its composition, given that the newest justices, Kavanaugh and Barrett, uh, while they were on uh, the lower courts, uh, wrote opinions uh, defending uh, the exercise of Second Amendment rights. Uh, uh, Kavanaugh especially has had several opinions talking about the history of the right and what it means, what its limits can and, and can't be. Uh, Justice Barrett had a case in a, if you followed her hearings a year ago, a case called Cantor versus Barr, uh, where this was the, uh, the felon dispossession where um, she wrote a 37 page dissent uh, in a case where uh, Mr. Cantor, who had pled guilty to one count of mail fraud about false claims that he had made about shoe inserts, like over 20 years earlier, um, that disqualifying him categorically without any showing of potential for violence or what have you is violates the Second Amendment. So anyway, uh, they seem to have a rather commonsensical approach uh, to the fundamental natural right to, uh, to self-defense. Um, but we'll see what happened. Um, you know, the, the Second Circuit here in this case followed its own precedent in a case called Kachalski, which said that uh, carrying in public is outside the core Second Amendment concern because Heller is only about home self-defense, uh, but that was to be expected. And so now we, we go to the Supreme Court where the specific question presented is whether the state's denial of petitioners' applications for concealed carry licenses for self-defense violates the Second Amendment. Um, so the question is, again, not whether New York will lose, it almost certainly will, um, uh, but you know, what is the standard that the court will uh, design for the lower courts? And I think it'll be something like, um, you have to take claims seriously. Is there a pretext for the state or municipal law that's being challenged? Um, is the person who's, uh, uh, you know, is there an as applied problem with the, the person who's, who wants to be able to carry? So there's the issue of, um, sometimes called the uh, the red flag rule or the naked man rule. If you're if you don't have any uh, 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 criminal convictions or I don't know you've never been institutionalized for mental health reasons, but nevertheless you're acting like seemingly a crazy person out on your front lawn. Can the chief of police you know stop you from from possessing a firearm? I don't know. There's ways to deal with that sort of issue short of stopping every law-abiding citizen, no matter how. Um, you know, violence stricken their neighborhood is, no matter if it's someone who's disabled or a woman who's smaller than has to walk home in the middle of the night uh, from work or, or what have you. 
Um, I, I just don't think these functional bans are going to survive and um, presumably the court will put some teeth into its rulings so lower courts don't just poo-poo away uh, every challenge uh, by having invocation of, of public safety. Um, so that's as far, I think, as the, as the constitutional analysis can go at this point, what you can expect to hear in less than a month, I think it's November 3rd, uh, that the court hears uh, Bruin. Um, but uh, beyond uh, that authority, what kinds of legislative or executive, I guess, proposals uh, will fly if you're concerned about uh, gun violence? You know, President Obama, despite um, a lot of hay being made about, uh, he's gonna take away all your guns and things like this, uh, his executive actions that he signed uh, the most significant ones actually relaxed restrictions on carrying uh, for Amtrak customers, carrying guns in check bags, for example, or um, uh, 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 carrying of guns in national parks. There are some cartoons about the right to arm bears, kind of funny. Uh, most of the issues with the executive orders that he had after Newtown were about privacy uh, and HIPAA and, and things like this, rather than actual Second Amendment uh, impositions. Donald Trump, ironically, had a very uh, high profile uh, uh, restriction with respect to redefining bump stocks, which is kind of a, uh, a device that you can attach onto a rifle that uses the kinetic energy of the recoil to allow you to pull the trigger faster than you normally would. Uh, but redefining that kind of device into a machine gun and therefore effectively banning it. Uh, challenges to that uh, on administrative law grounds, not on Second Amendment grounds, are pending uh, across the country. Uh, under Joe Biden, we've already had an ATF nominee withdrawn uh, for various controversial positions that he'd taken. Um, uh, the president has asked the Justice Department to restrict stabilizing braces. That is a, a, another type of device that allows you to hold a gun more steady. Um, uh, actions uh, being pondered about ghost guns, uh, uh, 3D printed guns, uh, and I mentioned red flag legislation to combat the, the naked man scenario. So it's not, you know, there's not uh, a mass federal ban that's, that's being planned uh, yet, uh, what we've seen. Well, what about legislative proposals for background checks, right? Well, turns out that currently fewer than 2% of guns uh, that are used in crimes uh, in crimes have been bought at gun shows and flea markets and most of those that are bought at, at gun shows and flea markets are bought from registered dealers so the only the, the only so-called loophole is from you know a private seller that goes to uh, a flea market that's not normally in the business of selling guns there's not too much criminality involved in acquisition of guns uh, that way uh, what about large capacity magazines well it just depends uh, on the number. Uh, really, if you ban magazines that carry more than, you know, 20, 30, um, that's no practical effect. Uh, the truly large magazines, um, they malfunction frequently, they're not very convenient to use, they generally uh, uh, aren't used. And as for the very common ones, kind of between the 10 and 20 uh, round magazine range, uh, you know, there are millions and millions out there. It's really not practical to make um, so many uh, uh, gun owners um, into, uh, into criminals. Um, the assault weapons ban, there was a federal ban on so-called assault weapons, which as I said, there's no such thing as an assault weapon. It's kind of a, a slang for a rifle that looks scary because it's been painted black or has a, right, a, a pistol grip or a bayonet mount or certain other cosmetic features that the joke goes for a long time. The ranking uh, uh, made the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dianne Feinstein, afraid 
Um, but that does not, you know, a quote unquote assault weapon does not change the rate of fire, the caliber of the bullet or anything else that would actually make a weapon more, uh, more dangerous. Automatic weapons, that is machine guns, that's been effectively banned since 1934. Uh, and uh, regardless, uh, in terms of semi-automatic rifles, the ones that you can just pull a trigger and a bullet comes out without having to reload, um, uh, most of, you know, very few of those are used uh, in crimes anyway. For example, in 2019, 14,000 people were murdered in this country, nearly half, 6,375 were with a handgun, 1,500 were with knives, 600 with hands or feet, 360 with rifles. And that doesn't differentiate between uh, a hunting rifle or an AR-15, the so-called assault weapon. So again, more people are murdered each year with bare hands and bare feet than so-called assault weapons. Um, real solutions, as I said at the outset, would involve uh, targeting mental illness, making sure the uh, background check database uh, is in order. Uh, the drug war, right? So much of our uh, ills in this country can be traced back to the drug war. You know, you legalize certain drugs, you regulate them, things like that. You wouldn't have especially violent inner city crime, uh, you know, uh, uh, shootouts over, over turf and, and, and things like that. Um, no, no gun regulation, a truth be told, has ever been shown to reduce violent crime, suicides, or accidents. You know, there's been various studies by the CDC, by the National Academy of Sciences, by Harvard, individual researchers, kind of meta-studies, studies of studies, uh, and, and it turns out nothing, you know, ammunition bans, waiting periods, registration requirements, all these sorts of things, there seems to be no correlation between the imposition of various kinds of restrictions and rates of violence or murder or suicide or, or any of these things. Um, guns are already the most heavily regulated consumer product. There are thousands of laws uh, on the books, many of which probably should be enforced uh, better. Uh, handguns are the only product that you can't buy outside your state of, of residence. Uh, and at least a dozen times in the last 25 years, an armed person has stopped a mass murder, so restrictions are not uh, a net benefit uh, regardless. So look, the Second Amendment exists to protect the grand experiment in self-government. Call me a constitution nut, but I'm crazy about allowing people to live their lives with the maximum freedom possible. If I could snap my fingers and end gun violence, uh, I would. I'd even take guns away from hunters and uh, sportsmen, which that kind of activity is not protected by the Second Amendment, if it meant better self-defense for the rest of us. Men aren't angels, however, and by definition, criminals don't follow the law. So yes, in the wake of each latest shooting, I still support the right to bear arms. Thanks very much. All right, thank you, uh, Mr. Shapiro, for, for your remarks. Uh, our second speaker today is Professor Stephen Clark. Professor Clark joined the law school in 2000 after working in the Chicago office of Winston and Strawn, where he specialized in employment-related appellate litigation. He is a frequent contributor to discussions in the media related to constitutional issues, LGBTQ rights, and the Supreme Court. At Albany Law School, Professor Clark teaches constitutional law, constitutional law to First Amendment, conflict of laws, employment discrimination, and the law school's newest 1L seminars, Marriage Equalities, and RBG, and the, and the Quest for Sex Equality. 
With that, I would like to welcome to the podium, Professor Stephen Clark. Thank you. Just as I was getting ready to come up, I lost my internet connection and with it, my notes. So bear with me for one second as I try to recover uh, this document. This always seems to happen. As long happen. as you're not using PowerPoint, because I find that unconstitutional. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. We'll wing it if we have to. It's not like it. All right, we'll wing it. <laughs> Thank you all. Uh, as we convene here uh, in this place today, uh, I want to begin, uh, as I sometimes do with uh, events, uh, and that is to acknowledge that we are on the traditional lands of the Mohican Indians. This is Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, that proud peoples now reduced to a small community uh, in central Wisconsin, which um, my partner and I had the pleasure to visit briefly this summer. Their main street is still named for the Hudson River uh, out in Wisconsin where they were somewhat involuntarily relocated. There's a mixture of, of decision-making in that one. Uh, in addition to Indigenous Peoples Day, we traditionally uh, recognize the struggle of Italian Americans uh, for their equal status in society on this day as well. And so it's a bit fitting that we are talking about Heller which is a, something of a monument to Justice Scalia, our first Italian-American member of the Supreme Court. Uh, before uh, I get into the substance here, uh, let me add uh, uh, a few personal remarks here. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Ilya, for coming uh, and sharing uh, your vast knowledge of this topic. Uh, with us. I had the pleasure of reading your brief uh, and preparation for this uh, as well. Thank you to uh, the chapter here for inviting me to participate uh, in this event as well. I do want to add a disclaimer. Um, my presence here is not an endorsement of the work of the National Organization of the Federalist Society. I disagree with them on many things, particularly their role in selecting judges. Uh, of late. Uh, lastly, uh, for libertarians uh, in the room, I realize the Federal Society is something of a mixture of conservatives uh, and libertarians. For the libertarians uh, in the room, uh, let me add uh, this. Uh, I'd urge you uh, in this time to think beyond the traditional coalition that libertarians have had with the Republican Party, including Christian conservatives, uh, and uh, expand your libertarianism, as some libertarians do, but others don't, uh, to issues that don't fit neatly in that traditional alignment, particularly right now, the right of women, 
uh, not to be forced to gestate a fetus against their will. Not an issue that you often hear a lot about from libertarians, unfortunately. So I urge you to rethink your scope of what qualifies libertarians to their credit have done that with gay rights uh, over the past uh, several decades and have been partners in that uh, quest for equality. Now, turning to the issue uh, at hand, uh, much of what we just heard was premised on uh, Heller being correctly decided. Uh, and we are in a position now with the court uh, created uh, with uh, the aggressive politics of Mitch McConnell uh, so that we can safely assume I think that Heller is good law, but I don't want to let Heller go without challenge. And the challenge may fall on deaf ears today, um, but I still think the challenge to Heller is worth hearing. The opinion addressed two different issues. One is the one you hear most about, and it's the one the opinion was most about, uh, and that's DC's effective ban on ownership of handguns uh, and possession of them in one's home. But the second issue, uh, and of course the court struck down DC's ban on that. The second issue was another provision of the DC law, which required trigger locks on guns in the home if they weren't disassembled. The court struck that down also. Uh, and in striking that one down, uh, I think uh, the court uh, was insufficiently thorough uh, in its analysis, but that trigger lock uh, invalidation also, I think, reflects where I think the court really went wrong in Heller. <clears throat> Much of the opinion in the Heller case is geared toward repudiating, rebutting some arguments that frankly aren't that strong. Uh, and I see Professor Buffington in the room and I know he agrees with the criticism of the linguist's brief that was the basis for some of those arguments. A good portion of the opinion is about rebutting uh, this linguist argument, this linguist brief's argument that keep and bear arms just intrinsically or necessarily has a military service meaning or a militia meaning. Uh, and really almost to the point of being pedantic, the court's opinion uh, repudiates that or rebuts that. Uh, and there are plenty of usages of terms like this from the time period that, that were not in a military uh, context uh, and some in a self-defense they tended to be in a self-defense context when they weren't in a military context. So this idea that the words themselves just simply bear militia, uh, I, I think is not that persuasive. Uh, and that's a good portion of the court's opinion. Uh, another good uh, significant chunk of the court's opinion is rejecting something else is not particularly that strong an argument. Uh, and that is this notion that when the second amendment says right of the people, 
that that's purely a collective right. It's something that can only be exercised collectively via a militia. It's not an individual right. Again, a good portion of the opinion goes to rejecting that. When you look at the usage of that same terminology elsewhere in the Constitution, I think it's pretty clear that it can bear an individual rights meaning uh, as well. What the Heller opinion, however, does not adequately address, uh, in my view, uh, is what I call the purpose clause of the Second Amendment. Now, the court will call it the prefatory clause, uh, and they'll distinguish it from the keep and bear arms portion of the Second Amendment, which they'll call the operative clause. I think all of it's operative. I don't think we have inoperative parts uh, of this amendment. Uh, and I think even rhetorically, they try to marginalize the role of that opening language. It's the militia language, the militia clause, if you prefer that over the purpose clause. It is so rare, it is so rare in the law, whether it's constitutional provisions or statutory enactments or administrative regulations, that we have the benefit from the lawmakers of an explicit statement as to what the purpose of the enactment was. It can be a crucial tool in helping to interpret uh, an enactment to be able to identify what the purpose was. Uh, and it can be really hard to identify what the purpose or purposes uh, of a piece of legislation or constitutional provision are. We have an enormous benefit in the Second Amendment of having an explicit declaration of purpose uh, in that provision. And declarations of purpose can be crucial or identification of purposes can be crucial in interpreting and applying legal documents, legal provisions. This one says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, then you get the rights language by the people to keep their arms shall not be infringed. According to my view, does not adequately deal with the purpose clause. We can concede that the language in the rights clause is capable of bearing a whole variety of meanings. It could refer to militia service, it could refer to self-defense, it could refer to hunting, it could refer to a number of things. It could refer to insurrection. Court did not adequately explain why this amendment should not be construed to effectuate the explicit declared purpose. And it's not that the court isn't limiting the rights clause by focusing on purposes. They are. They simply want to add an additional purpose or two that are nowhere mentioned in the text of the Second Amendment, despite the presence of an explicit declaration of purpose. 
Self-defense is the purpose that runs through the majority opinion in Heller. And it's combined with a notion that this is an inherent right. And Kegeli referenced natural right at the point in his remarks as well. That's language for not in the text. In other situations, you might have expected they'd throw in a citation to the Ninth Amendment to say we're often unenumerated purpose land here, coming up with additional purposes not stated in the provision. This is at the same time that the court acknowledged that the animating motive for adding this amendment to the Constitution was to address anti-federalist concern that Congress would neuter state militias, not by directly banning state militias, but by confiscating everybody's guns. It is no surprise, given that as the animating purpose, that we have a Second Amendment that opens with a militia-focused Declaration of Purpose. That's a Scalia and his opinion response. Well, it, it couldn't have just been that. It didn't satisfy the anti-federalists. They didn't have to satisfy the anti-federalist critics. They had to satisfy people in the middle who might have been influenced by the anti-federalist critics. And those people could look at that amendment and see, we have addressed your militia concern with this. Uh, and it really wasn't necessary to go beyond the militia purpose to deal with DC's ban, the first of the provisions. The underlying assumption here with the militia, as the court acknowledges, is the militia constitutes the citizenry at large. The executive authority of the jurisdiction summons the militia, the militia's ordinary citizens. They grab their gun and they show up at the mustering location to be part of the militia. Well, if you don't have a gun in your home and the executive authority summons the militia, there's nothing for you to grab. And that was the case in DC with the ban on having guns in one's home. You don't need to go beyond the militia purpose to invalidate that ban, it was so sweeping. But you do have to go beyond the militia purpose to invalidate the trigger lock requirement. The court spent very little of its time in the Heller opinion on the trigger lock requirement. Just a few sentences on it. And when you look at those sentences, what you find is suddenly the court is talking about not only that the Second Amendment serves this additional unstated purpose of self-defense, but that apparently in addition to keeping and bearing, you have a right to use the gun, 
Somehow keep and bear arms became keep, bear, and use. And repeatedly they say, Heller needs to keep and use. This is a quote, keep and use his gun. The trigger lock requirement infringes his right to hold and use. It must, the gun must be operable, must be operable for the purpose of immediate self-defense. If self-defense includes use, then we have some really serious application issues if we start talking about possession of the gun beyond the home and use of the gun for self-defense. The militia, the militia purpose did not require validation of the trigger lock requirement. You're summoned to the militia. We don't do this anymore, but if the executive authority summons you to join the militia, a particular mustering location, you find your gun in your house, you take the trigger lock off of it and you go to the mustering location. There's nothing inconsistent with the militia purpose about the trigger lock requirement. And the trigger lock requirement, it is hoped, it significantly reduced the risk of accidental killings in homes. An issue the court in striking it down didn't even mention. What else qualifies as a purpose for the court to keep, bear, and apparently use weapons is unclear. Some of the language relied on in interpreting keep and bear also mentioned hunting. Court was inconsistent, however, about whether hunting would be included in this phrasing. More disturbingly, unclear and with mixed signals, I think, is whether taking action against lawful government is a purpose protected by this clause. In other words, insurrection, which we just saw in January. The remain, I think, serious arguments that the court has embarked on a course that has left the text of the amendment, they are being forced to decide which additional unstated purposes are to be served by this amendment. They are forced because of the expansion beyond the militia purpose to craft one exception after another and try to explain the origin of these exceptions, which are also not in the text. And now they're also being asked to come up with a standard of review. It's unclear exactly what the challengers are asking in terms of the standard of review. The 
repeated refrain is something from text, history, and tradition doesn't seem to get more specific than that. It's an odd situation for a court to be in as a result of a decision by justice who generally was quite critical of non-textual decision-making uh, and excessive policy-making by the judges themselves. So, if you noticed, the constitutional portion of Ilya's remarks didn't really sound that much different from the political lobbying portion at the end of the remarks, because there's really not a difference between those two. It's simply adding the judiciary as another policy-making body and making these policy arguments to them. His arguments, some of them are sound, maybe some of them are not. They're perfectly appropriate for a legislature to consider. But mostly I think they're not about militia service. Uh, and I think that's why uh, they should fail the constitutional arguments. Thank you. All right, I want to take some, be sure to take some questions and I'm not uh, in a hurry. I'm told there's no class right after, so I'm, I'm happy to stay as long as there are people who want to talk about this. Um, uh, before I open it up to, to questions for, for all of you, just a couple of things. Um, well, first, kind of Professor Clark's uh, preamble, I don't think there's a libertarian alliance with the Republican Party. I mean, trying to herd libertarians to do any particular thing is even harder than herding cats. Uh, at the Cato Institute, we, we come up with whatever positions we might have on a given policy area. And if someone likes it, uh, that's great. If someone doesn't like it, that's too bad, but we have and, and will and do work with all sorts of organizations. In the legal front, we joined uh, amicus briefs or had other uh, groups join us from what you would consider traditional progressive groups, traditional conservative groups, issue-oriented organizations, and, and what have you. So we have our principles. You can take them or leave them, but they're certainly not partisan or, or political. Uh, on uh, Heller, um, you know, the, the issue of a trigger law goes to the issue of having a functional firearm. Firearms not much use if it's not functional. Uh, I don't think the purpose of the militia clause, to the extent that the purpose of the militia clause matters, uh, is that you have uh, something that roughly looks like a weapon. Uh, if it's not usable, it's not a, a firearm that, that's, that's usable. You know, we can debate what, what the militia clause means or its significance, you know, able-bodied men at the time and all this other thing. But by the time you get to the 14th Amendment, which after all is what covers most of the country with respect to right, the right to keep and bear arms, it goes away from all of that discussion because we have to look at the situation in the 1860s, specifically after the Civil War, with the uh, vast state oppressions of freedmen and other political minorities, you know, Confederate supporters in the, in the North, Union supporters in the South, all of these sorts of things, which is why Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and then building on that, the 14th Amendment um, to prevent, uh, again, freed slaves and others from being 
uh, dispossessed of their property, being able to, the, the right to earn an honest living, and fundamentally defend themselves uh, with, with firearms. The meaning of the right to keep their arms is actually different by the time we get to the 14th Amendment, the Reconstruction Era, than, than it uh, meant at the founding. That kind of got clouded in the McDonald decision because there was no one majority uh, opinion, right? We had Alito for, for four justices, Thomas agreeing on other grounds, and I don't want to get into the minutiae, the privilege or immunities clause or anything like that, but it is more complicated than you know, uh, what, what, what militia meant and the significance of that to the so-called operative clause in uh, 1791. Uh, more broadly, if you want to hear, you know, my constitutional argument, it's not the same as my, my policy argument, it is that uh, as with other constitutional rights, the government needs to have a good enough reason for restricting them. Uh, and it's not simply for judges to say, ah, you know, public safety, close enough, good enough, any sort of restriction matters have to look at whether a particular thing that the government does, which undeniably burdens, uh, uh, violates, infringes, cabins uh, their individual right to, to armed self-defense, whether that actually does something. Is it how closely tailored are the are the means? And I don't mean to get into the you know the artificial scrutiny of is it is it heightened, is it rational basis with teeth, is it intermediate, is it strict, is it, you know, all of these things, which of course were invented by the court over the years to make sense of different kinds of right jurisprudence. But it just means that as with other rights, the government needs uh, it's the government that needs a good reason, not as the uh, challengers in the Bruin case, uh, according to New York law, say they have to have uh, good cause uh, for the exercise of the right. Should we open up to questions? Do you want to say anything more? I, just a quick response to the 14th Amendment. I, if no one would have been happier that the Supreme Court had overturned the slaughterhouse cases in McDonald's and decided they were going to integrate privileged communities clause in the 14th Amendment. They didn't explicitly refuse to do that. They treated it as an incorporation issue. They established the rule that it's the same thing, it's the Bill of Rights, why the federal government forfeits the 14th Amendment. So, given that they're not reopening the rules of these laws, I think it's hard to rely on the definition coming from the Constitution. And yet, they need Thomas' vote to, to make the fifth vote. So, it's hard to see what there is no one clear rule of what they were doing, other than that there is an individual right that applies to the states. How, the scope of it, that's what this case is partly about. Well, I mean, we'll see if they're willing to say that there's a different, there's a different scope for one than the other, and we're not going to have long step anymore. Then okay, but they don't expect to do that because we have a long step. So, so far, we have to respect that. Maybe moving in the direction of, of even more long step with the corporation doctrine in the last few years. So, perhaps, perhaps they'll move out of long step. All right, questions. I'm a Leafs fan. Nice hat. <laughs> actually, I'm actually both. This might make all of you think much less of me. I'm, I'm a, you know, we generally frown on sports bigamy, but, uh, you know, I grew up in Ontario, but then I've been in the DC area for 17 years now, which is longer than I lived in Canada. And uh, my wife a few years ago bought a, uh, what we call a Franken flag. It's the Capitals on one side. I've been a season ticket holder of the Capitals for 13 years now, and the Leafs on the other. And when the playoffs start, I hang the flag in, 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 part, in, in place of our uh, American flag that we normally have at our house uh, until both teams are eliminated. So this past playoffs was a very short run for the Franken flag. <laughs> anyway, sorry.
Yeah, it's to provide um, the individual right to bear arms. The militia clause is, it's interesting history because of the way that kind of relationship between citizens and the government were thought of uh, at the time. And the, the thinking was based on historians uh, that have done this work is that uh, it was important to be able to have a group of citizens, typically um, able-bodied men age 16 to 50, more or less, uh, who would have uh, uh, access to the firearms in case uh, there was tyranny that came, you know, whether it's King George, the government that we used to replace it or, or whatever. And so the, the, the word militia was sort of, you know, the collective of uh, able-bodied men who needed to have uh, their private firearms. And so it was saying how this concern for uh, tyranny being so fresh in our minds, uh, it's important for uh, uh, individuals or at least able-bodied men to, of a certain age to have um, functional firearms. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Jason. I'm with Real. Um, I just wanted to ask your opinion about like textualism in general and like whether it's an error to resort to the type of Yeah, when, when you're doing so when you're doing originalism, which is kind of like textualism for constitutional law, there are some differences, but I don't think they're that relevant here. Textualism is typically in the context of statutory law. Um, yeah, first of all, you have to do it at the right time. So um, this is the discussion about the 14th versus the Second Amendment, or for, for that matter, the meaning of the freedom of speech in 1791 is different than it was in 1868. So what is the, what's the significance of that? Um, so you have to do it at the right time. The court doesn't always do that. Uh, and it's not just about the privileges or immunities clause. It's in, in general, different, different uh, you know, you, you look at uh, provisions when they're enacted and the meaning when they're, uh, when they're enacted. And um, again, when you're doing originalism, if you're not doing originalism, then you, know, you apply other, other uh, uh, methods of construction. Um, you try to understand the original public meaning of the various words. 
So it's not clear from the text. Uh, you know, there are very few, there are some provisions in the Constitution that are just, you know, the text itself, you know, you have to be 35 to be the president. Yeah, hard to, hard to argue something that that means something else. Although there is kind of a half and cheek, uh, tongue in cheek law review article saying that, uh, you know, if you believe in the living Constitution, then you have that 35 is relative to the uh, uh, life expectancy at the time. And so now it's more like you have to be like 57 or something. Anyway, uh, so there are ways even to, 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 uh, to be cute with that sort of thing. But um, the Second Amendment, you have to understand, you know, what does the militia clause mean? You don't just assume it's an inkblot or it just means nothing. Um, you have to understand what, what that means in the, you know, I gave you my understanding based on the historians that I've read, um, the right to keep and bear arms. What does that, what does keep mean? So you look at dictionaries at the time, what does bear mean? Same thing. Or you look at the Federalist Papers, right? To explain the structure of the, the original constitution. That's not the second amendment, but it's other parts, uh, because that is explications of the time of what the enactors and ratifiers understood, or even more importantly, what was the, the, the public meaning of it. Because different people, different ratifiers might have understood it to mean different things, but it's irrelevant. It's like, what is the, the text means? What is it? What is the kind of, to the extent that we can understand it? And this, that's the role of judges to figure it out. What is that uh, public meaning? So um, to get at the self-defense part, you, that, that, you know, as you read the history of the militia clause, as you read the debates over the Second Amendment, as you, you know, think about or, 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 or try to understand what, um, uh, those who won't put in the Second Amendment uh, in the first place, what their concerns were, that's where that uh, uh, comes in. Again, not their intentions, but trying to understand what that text um, uh, really meant uh, at the time. And that was the debate between Scalia and uh, Stevens, um, which is a, a good debate to have. That's all on, on originalist grounds. Can I answer that? Yeah. Um, the militia clause, performs an interesting function in the yeah. uh, in one respect. So it's a, a small function that's easily overlooked. Um, the Scalia opinion says that the uh, rights granting laws, the human arms part, uh, when it refers to arms, um, it refers to common weapons used by ordinary citizens and it makes it back to the previous number decision that the clause protects what ordinary people would have brought to the mustering location in the militia. Uh, if you, it's odd that the militia clause defines what arms are protected, but then we dispense with the militia clause when we're talking about other purposes that the rights granting clause might serve. If the rights granting clause um, protects um, a right of self-defense, you would think the inquiry would be that what sort of weapons are most useful for self-defense? Those would be protected. You wouldn't link it back to Miller and militia and that sort of analysis. Um, to the extent the purpose uh, is um, resisting the existing government, uh, you might then ask what sort of arms you need for that? Arms that way. So this, this, this imposition of a limitation on the arms that qualify based on militia ideas is sort of incoherent in the opinion if you're rejecting the militia clause as um, providing some guidance for eliminating self-right provision. So uh, as I said, it's really about self-defense. You should ask what weapons you need for self-defense. 
and that way I would make it to the Hi, I'm a comfortable speaker, but uh, hi, I'm Nick Modest, I'm as well. Uh, my question is about insurrection. Uh, governments typically has uh, almost legitimate monopoly on courts. And I'm wondering in local isolated cases, such as Ruby Ridge, if you want to use an old example, or more recently, uh, the Chavo case, uh, where governments use of force, I think we can all agree, is not as legitimate as it might be in other circumstances. Uh, how does insurrection play into that? It certainly was a consideration in the in the writing and the drafting of the Second Amendment, uh, the idea that uh, sometimes government becomes uh, illegitimate and you need to yeah, have, have an insurrection. Um, and you know, much more that was a bigger concern with the Second Amendment than with the 14th Amendment, again, which was about state oppressions against individuals in the post-war period and things like that. Um, but, but certainly insurrection was a concern. And by the way, we now, you know, sometimes you hear this and you're like, well, now that's that's irrelevant because you know who can go against uh, you know F-35s and tanks and and ICBMs and things like that. Well, you know I'll refer you to the the Viet Cong uh, guerrillas. I'll refer you to Afghanistan or Iraq. Right? Uh, it's not a matter of um, you know does anyone have the full might of the of the U.S. Army or something like that. Uh, but it's um, you know that kind of resistance to to illegitimate governance is. Um, a particularly American gloss and the, why it's you know relevant to the constitutional discussion beyond simply the philosophical natural right to, to self-defense. Uh, if you're talking about uh, um, protecting a right to keep and bear arms for an insurrection purpose, and I get you're flipping around where they are this that and the question you're asking. Uh, if you're going to do that right to cause, especially that purpose, um, even given these examples, and I think that means protect IEDs, protect hand grenades, protect things like that, machine guns, if um, we're not using handguns alone, nor were the resistance fighters uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq. So this this idea that we have to go to the purposes, but we're trying to constrain the types of weapons that are protected to the sole militia, I think it's just, I think, incoherent. Um, something else that I think is quite disturbing in the Scalia opinion uh, is his failure to clearly repudiate insurrection as a potential purpose uh, of uh, the rights granting of well, the second gentleman. At one point, in discussing Presser versus Illinois, a 19th century case is not, not directly on point. Uh, he, the case involved uh, people uh, bearing their guns and parading around public squares and all that prohibited that. Uh, and Scalia so was very derisive towards this. Uh, this is private paramilitary units, and, and that the, the, the most that stands for is we don't have a right to be private paramilitary unit. At other points in the opinion, he talks about this, the citizen militia, the people's militia. Very favorable terms. And it's as you look at it, it is hard for me to figure out what exactly the difference is between the people's militia, the citizens' militia, versus the private paramilitary unit, except that it's summoned by the lawful executive authority of jurisdiction. Um, and if it's self summoning 
uh, or summoned by some non-governmental actor, then it seems to me that it's, it's insurrection and it's a private paramilitary uh, unit. But he doesn't, he doesn't clearly enough for my case say this is not for the insurrection kind of we're not going to protect things that people can can uh and dig a hole underground of their house stockpile for the insurrection it's fine but clearly less so when he was writing an opinion in his defense uh, but after January, I think the right to prep is that what you're saying? I don't think that's a Second Amendment right. That's just a basic right of, I guess, property and ownership of stuff that you want to put in your cellar. Okay, if it's the right to have a gun in your home, then sure. Then, then that's if you're calling that the right to prep, then, then sure. Oh, it depends on what weapons you want to. I suppose. Um, um, I think if it can't. point is, that. what? How do you differentiate the private paramilitary unit and the insurrectionist behavior from the militia lawfully summoned by executive authority of the jurisdiction? The, the latter seems clearly the concern of the framers here, ensuring that Congress has interfered with no gifts to the state executive summoned. How you exclude that from extending to private insurrectionists, Michigan militia types? I think he's not clear on the problem. I think you said it insurrectionist behavior, paramilitary behavior. So, what is it that they're exactly doing? They're just marching around in a field. Yeah, I don't know, unless they're violating somebody's property rights in that field or you know, shooting off their weapons willy nilly, creating a nuisance or something. Right. Anyway, not a Second Amendment issue to my mind. Well, how do we know that? I mean, we're just we're sort of we already have laws against we have laws against murder. We have laws against you know. We have laws against owning a gun in your home in DC as well, and the second will override them. Okay, but there's no there's no constitutional rights that that, that, that protect your right to kill someone unless it's in self defense. Which purposes are already? Oh, you have so you have constitutional right to kill someone. Absolutely. I think you had your hand. I don't know, this is just an expression of exasperation. Um, I have many things I'd like to say um, to you with your questions. So rather, <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to talk to you outside, but I think maybe most disappointed in um, the minimization of the distinction between effectivism and effectivism. The former is coherent, the latter My name is Joe Merrill. Uh, to a question I have for you is following the Heller decision, you included the Second Amendment, included the Clause, and so providing a protection to the unorganized militia of the United States from being destroyed by the federal government, our feeling terror section is trying to you know, code and protect it, break it down. Sorry, I didn't I didn't hear it. Breaking down the, the militia by repealing a section of US code? It's unorganized militia. It's the, Militia clause of the Second Amendment after Heller doesn't really do a whole lot. Is there anything that's stopping the federal government from getting rid of the unorganized militia? It's all the able-bodied men who the age of 1845s and then really the National Guard are having to hire their from. 
it's like the federal government just get rid of that and it won't be a problem because it's terrible to publish anymore? And or is it like that's the pipeline? The federal government get rid of like state national guards? So. No, it's the unorganized militia of the United States, this federal version. But well, would the state unorganized militia, I suppose, the question as well? Because the federal organized militia is the National Guard, but it's also Army Reserve. So I don't know if one of those could just like to get rid of the unorganized part of the militia that exists now. I've never studied that question. Um... I've looked at National Guard issues and, and, and reserve stuff, but it's not, I don't, I don't think the army or, or state uh, uh, National Guard need a second amendment to protect their right to, to bear arms because that, that comes from a separate sovereign. Um, the unorganized militia, I, I don't know. Have you looked at that at all? No, and I think you're looking at it right now, but that's, that's right. Um, it, to me, it's more the question of the one yeah, I think that's right. So if you're writing a paper on it, I'd love to see it when you're, when you're finished researching. Yeah. April. <laughs> April. <Never> <laughs> Pick up on what you said about, about textualism and what had occurred to me, but I didn't uh, put in my answer to, to you on that question. You know, textualism is also not just, you know, words in isolation, it's also the text in the context of the larger statutes. So for example, um, two years ago, uh, Justice Gorsuch found that uh, Title VII of the uh, Civil Rights Act employment discrimination laws uh, already include protections for uh, gender identity and sexual orientation in the Bostock case. Um, and he did so by saying that sex, the word sex is inextricably connected to gender identity and sexual orientation, which I think is indisputable. Uh, but the problem, and this is, I think, the only case, that in the Dormant Commerce Clause is the only times I've found that I've disagreed with Gorsuch. Uh, but the problem, as Kavanaugh pointed out in dissent in that case, is that the applicable phrase is on the basis of sex. And so when you're doing textualism, um, you know, you have to see what that phrase means. That is the operative phrase of the, of the provision at issue. And I don't think in 2020, let alone in 1964, uh, if someone was fired for being gay, you would say they were fired on the basis of sex. And that's why I think Gorsuch was too textualist or hypertextualist or something, rather than applying um, standard tools of, of textualism. That might that doesn't go to the difference between textualism and originalism, but it, it shows it shows that it's still not just the text or the words or, or something like that. Actually, I think that the criticism of them is original and he's doing textualism. Members of Congress did this basis up. No, 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 it's not, no, 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 it's not an original public, it's not like, you know, surprise and surprise meaning or something like that, it's, it's what do the words mean, and on the basis of sex means being fired because of your sex, which is different than being fired for your sexual orientation. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> Can we take one of your exasperated questions now then? <laughs> No, I think it would take us too far. Okay. If you have a better answer or a, you know, a concise answer on the difference between textualism and originalism, please feel free to give that. Textualism starts and ends with the, with the meaning of the language. It doesn't necessarily give deference to what it meant to the folks. Maybe the folks who are at least 
um, affected by, by the increase. And you know, the, the trouble is, we're throwing out what we think things mean without actually any training, figuring out what things mean. I have a PhD in linguistics. I've thought about these things for decades. I'm still not very good at it, but I'm better than any of the justices. Um, so we but for the wrong reason. Gorsuch, right, but for the wrong reason. I'm so sick of the textualists, the individualists, thinking that they can diagnose what things mean without being able to subject the subjects to science. And, and, and so you can crack very solid methodologies for figuring out whether things actually mean what you think they mean or what you say they mean or what you want them to mean. But we can't apply those methods to the relevant parties, especially when we're talking about what is the framers mean or intent. So you can be a textualist because anything less than textualism is anything goes. So you can be a textualist aspire to figuring out what things mean to the relevant parties. You can do it differently in contracts or in probate or in statutes or in super statutes. So you can develop right means of figuring out things, what they mean and what they should mean, or how we should figure out what things should mean in a particular context. That's right, the enterprise that none of the textualists, none of the originalists, none of the conservatives, none of the libertarians are willing to buy into. Scalia and Huddle was right. The linguist who taught the amicus brief blew it. It's an embarrassment, actually, of things to know what they're, what they're doing. But that doesn't mean that Scalia was right for the right reasons. The operative clause, he was right. The operative clause, and we can actually craft some examples to subject you to um, practicality tests and figure out whether you think this actually can mean but it ostensibly means et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does not restrict, it's not a semantic scope. He's absolutely right that the most likely interpretation, even based on history, not just science, is that this is in recognition of why we're codifying something. This is recognition. It's a bit like, let me just do just a teeny, teeny bit. You invited it, here it is. So I could say, for example, if you're hungry, you eat the cookie. Where the semantics of this is actually, in a sense, restricting the world in which you're eating the cookie. Totally different for me to say if you're hungry, there are cookies. The if is actually not contributing to the literal meaning or to the semantics of the phrase. It's actually, in a sense, sort of stating the relevance for saying what I'm saying, maybe the purpose for saying what I'm saying. In other words, we're essentially modifying without modifying, not at issue context. You can totally imagine I can craft a, a COVID based analogy for eating or not eating on campus. You can totally imagine. Interpreting the Second Amendment, say, look, the reason why we're seeing the operative cause is because we're recognizing these concerns of the people who we're trying to persuade. Totally legitimate, but that doesn't mean that Scalia's understanding of the language is actually based in science or reality. It's not. So people like me get exasperated because the textualists keep pretending like they know how text works and they don't. What do you think of uh, Thomas Lee's work with the? Um... Justice Lee on the Utah Supreme Court, right? He's, he's spreading the um, the use of the um, what is it called? It's, it's just escaping my mind. But this this new interpretive tool that's come out in the last two three years, the it's a linguistic thing. Yeah, let me see if I can look this up. No but I mean, thank you for hearing me out. I, I apologize that, you know, damn it, we were human law school. And, you know, policy is one thing, but that's not the practice of law. Law is inherently ambiguous. Law exists only in language. If you're going to do law, you're going to do a little bit of linguistics. You need to be receptive to the science of language. You need to be attuned to the subtle distinctions between textualism and originalism.
Metagnosis. Corvus linguistics. I get that's bullshit. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm coming here. So, this, so you mean there's disagreement among linguists, just like there are among lawyers? Oh my goodness. Not so much among the methodologies. Well, on, on that note, um, Kafka has a lot of Thank you so much for coming out. Everybody have a chance to find this thing. Everybody have a chance to find this thing.